from Red Bank Missionary Baptist Church and Touchpoint Ministries. This is the Gary Talks About God podcast. This morning, one more time, we were in John chapter 4. And for those of you who are not on Facebook with me, I may have seen a little joke I posted directed towards Barry about a pastor getting a ticket for preaching a 45-minute sermon in a 25-minute zone. And the fact this morning that I want to tell you to, uh, let's immediately go to the text without any introductory comments, should kind of tell you where we're going this morning. So let's immediately go to the text. And by the way, 45 minutes still gets us out before 12. Actually, it doesn't. I math wrong and gets us out shortly thereafter. But it's five minutes. Thank you, Barry, for not noticing how many seconds that would be as well. John chapter four. I just every time I read this story, I, I am just more and more amazed by it. And I pray that you have been too. So here we go. John four, verse one, reading down to verse 42, reading the entire story this morning. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one that you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. 
The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then the disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out from the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and the other reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there for two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and we know that indeed this is the Savior of the world. So this morning, as we work through this section one last time, I just I want you to notice two truths this morning. And the first one is this, and they're simple truths. Every believer has a testimony. That, that's the first one. Every believer has a testimony. Up until this point in the story, the story has focused exclusively on Jesus and his interaction with the woman at the well. Man, I really wish we knew her name. I'm sorry, that just came to me. That's a side note. I just wish we did. One day we will. I wish we did today. The disciples had left to go into town to buy food, to buy water. And Jesus is, is, is there by himself. And as the disciples return, they're, they're walking up to Jesus. And, and, and they, they see Jesus in this conversation and they marveled. Now, this is not the last time that Jesus will do something that causes the disciples to marvel, to question what he is doing to be shocked that he is doing it. But it gives you a sense of the mindset of the disciples. They marveled. He's talking to a Samaritan woman. It's not to be done. We've talked about this. Men didn't interact with women. Jews didn't interact with Samaritans. And additionally, and I haven't mentioned this before, we know that, that Jesus is called rabbi. He's a teacher. Rabbis did not teach the law to women. Right? They, they, even though rabbis thought that the, the greatest good in life was to study the law, they actively discouraged women from studying the law. Now, as Jesus is talking to a woman, as Jesus the Jew is talking to a Samaritan, as Jesus the rabbi is teaching a woman about spiritual truths and about the law, it would be really easy for us just to say, Jesus is just ignoring the theological uh, conventions of the time, right? 
If, if you want to have just a, a, a funny image, just think Jesus, the theological rebel, right? He's got his leather coat on, got his headband on. You know, Jesus, theological rebel, right? If we think that, we miss out on what is actually happening. Right? Because Jesus isn't just rebelling against the convention at the time. And we need to understand that. Right? God never intended His law to be known or studied only by men. God never intended the Israelites not to have any interaction with the Samaritans or the surrounding nations. Right? We can go back to Deuteronomy 6.4, right? the great schema, where it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. All the laws that I commanded them, teach them to your children. Now, by necessity, children implies men and, and women, boys and girls. Teach them all that I have commanded you to be, all that I've told you to do. Teach them when you get up, when you go to bed, when you go in, when you go out. Teach your children, men and women, the law. At the same time, Israel was supposed to be a light to the nations. We saw that in Isaiah. You're supposed to be taking the light of salvation to the nations. So Jesus is not being a theological rebel, just rebelling against the, the norms at the time. Jesus is fulfilling what Israel had failed to do. And that is preach the law, preach His Word to every nation so that everybody could hear. And the disciples are marveling that Jesus is fulfilling what Israel was called to do. They should have understood. But let's give them a little bit of credit. At least they were, not, they were smart enough not to ask why and, and get the uh, smackdown that would have come after they asked that question. But they marvel that Jesus is talking to her. But then in verse 28, it shifts back to the woman. And we've got to remember at this point that no word in Scripture is extraneous. Every word is given for a reason. And in verse 28, it says that she returns to town without her water jar. Why is she there? She's out there to get water. She's going to town without her water. She's going back and she leaves her jar. Why? Well, I think it's kind of obvious. She is so captivated by Jesus that the chore of getting water flees her mind. And in an arid climate, this is a big deal not to take water back to her home. But what Jesus has revealed to her and what Jesus has said to her and the testimony, the, the witness that Jesus has been to her and teaching her and interacting with her is, is to such a great extent, impacts her life to such a great extent that all she wants to do is to go back to town and share her testimony. She wants to go back to town and tell them what has happened? Tell them who she has met, and so that her chore becomes secondary. And you know what else becomes secondary? The shame that drove her to a well outside of town at an odd time to get water becomes secondary as well. Right? She's out there because she didn't want to face the gossip and the ridicule from the well. Is that the woman? Is, is that her? Look at her. I can't believe she's here with us. We're going to be disgraced now just because we're near her. She doesn't care about that shame. She returns to the town, and we're told that when she gets to the town, she speaks to the people. The very people who are willing to stand there and talk about her and to condemn her. 
And she is ready to tell them and share with her, share with them the testimony. She's standing there before town. And in verse 29, this is her testimony. And, and, and just know how simple it is. Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Right? Two parts. First part, come and see. And we've already seen that, right? Jesus, uh, when two of the disciples of John the Baptist is following him, and they ask him questions, Jesus says, come and see. And then when Philip is talking to Nathaniel, what does he say? He says, come and see. And now the woman says what? Come and see. Man, that's just so, come and see Jesus. What a simple invitation. Come and see Jesus. And then she says, why? I want you to come and see Jesus. I want you to come and see this man who told me all that I ever did. Let that sit for just a minute. Right? Because here, the longer you let that sit, the more uncomfortable you will become. Right? I mean, we, we know that she's exaggerating. Jesus couldn't have told her everything in that short period of time. Jesus told her enough. He, he, he told her enough for her to know that nothing <laughs> was hidden from him. Nothing. How would you like for everything you have ever done to be recounted to you? How, how, would, how would you like to make that confession? Because here's the thing. As soon as you get up and make that confession, I met a guy, I met a man who told me everything that I'd ever done. You know that everybody who's listening is not going to think the best of you. They're not going to immediately go, well, I remember that time that uh, you gave all that money to charity. I remember that time that, that you volunteered to, to help the homeless. I, I remember that time where, where you, you were going out to you know, uh, do something fun and you said you know, the church is doing something, so I'm not going to do that. I'm going, That's not what people are going to think as soon as you say, he told me everything that I ever did. You know what everybody's going to think? <laughs> All right, this is getting ready to get juicy. Let's hear the gossip. Because none of, you know, and as we think about it, let's be honest. And, and I, again, it's me. I know it's not you, but I got some things in my past I'd rather just not everybody know. You may not. I do. I'm sorry. I know y'all are more holy than me. I, I just don't want people to know. It didn't matter to her. It didn't matter to her what the people thought about her. What was important for her was to get that testimony out. Come see a man who told me everything that I did. And as the crowd was listening to, to that testimony from her, everybody in the crowd knew what she did. Everybody knows. Some of the people in the crowd would have been the same, would have been some of the men whose background and history would have overlapped with hers, if you don't understand what I'm saying. 
Some of the people in that crowd may have been some other women who had a similar story. However, everybody in that crowd had sins and had activities and had things that they had done in their past that they would not want to have recounted for everyone. And that's what she tells them. That's her testimony. Come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. And then she throws this out to him. Can this be the Christ? Now, the way that she asked that question is expressed with the idea that the answer could be no. There's a possibility that it's no, but there's a hopeful expectation that the answer is yes. When she asked that question, we can kind of hear her internal dialogue from the well back to town, can't we? Right? Is, is, is he the Messiah? He, he said he was. Well, it seems odd that the Messiah is at a Samaritan well. But he, 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 he told me everything that I've ever done. Well, maybe he just got lucky. Well, no, he, he was spot on with the five and the six. He knew the exact number. Right? I mean, we, we can hear the internal debate that she is having. But again, that internal debate doesn't stop her from sharing with the town, which is absolutely amazing. Here is the woman at the well who is still grappling and grasping at the truth that Jesus is the Messiah, that He is the Christ, but it doesn't stop her from telling the town. And she tells the town that simple testimony, which, let's be honest, is a really odd testimony, is it not? <laughs> Come and, and meet a guy who knew all my sins? I think he is the Christ. <laughs> I mean, you know, if you were developing an evangelism <laughs> uh, curriculum today, you probably wouldn't focus on this. <laughs> you, you probably wouldn't encourage people to say, hey, when you meet somebody and you want to introduce them to Jesus, start with the line, Jesus knows everything I've ever did. But the amazing part about it was, it was effective. So much so that her testimony, instead of driving people away from Jesus, right? Hey, why don't, hey Gary, why don't you come get meet this man who knows everything you've ever did? Um, no. He's going to remember that time in sixth grade when me and the teacher didn't get along very well. <laughs> I'm good. I don't want to talk to him. That's not what happens. The crowd, the townsfolks, hears her testimony, hears her invitation, and they go with her. Her testimony drives them to Jesus. It does not drive them away. And I find this so fascinating. I, I, I really do. How good was her grasp of theology? Right? I mean, Jesus kind of did just give her a crash course on the theology of worship. But how much did she understand? How, how's her view on the Trinity? What is her theological position as it comes to the second coming of Christ? Is she pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib? 
How about the millennial reign of Christ? Does she pre-post or ah? What is her soteriology? How about her ecclesiology, right? All these things, right? What did she know? Nothing. What did Jesus say about her? You worship what you do not know. And, and, and look, I, I don't want to drive home the, the fact that she didn't know anything. She didn't have an advanced theological degree. At the same time, what she knew was she met a man who told her all that she had did. That was all she knew. But it was enough. It was absolutely enough. My point is, you don't need an advanced theological degree. You don't need a five-point system. You don't need... Look, training helps. I'm not going to deny that. But a simple testimony is a powerful testimony. Even if all you can get is out, hey, look, all I know is I was lost once, but now I'm found. That's powerful And the woman is willing to stand before the town and tell them this. And so let's let's understand. She's she's being brave. It's being brave. Takes a lot of bravery to admit that you were a sinner who was lost but now found. And she is willing to do that. And before we leave. One last thing, just to drive this point home. Where's the testimony of the disciples? Hmm? Where's their testimony? Right? Quote, the disciples had just been down the town. They who knew the master longer and better. They brought back some loaves. That was all. The woman went down to town and she brought back some men. Isn't that amazing? That all we need is a simple testimony. The disciples weren't paying attention. <laughs> they missed the opportunity. The woman saw the opportunity, took it, shared with the town, and brought the town back to meet Jesus. Every believer has a testimony. Every one of you sitting here this morning has a testimony. And it can be just that simple. But then secondly, every believer is part of the mission. Every believer is part of the mission. Verse 31, you see the word meanwhile. John will do this several times throughout his Gospels. He will describe an event that's taking place over here, and then he'll throw in a meanwhile at the same time. So as the woman is in the middle of town testifying to the town folks, there's another scene playing out at the same time. It is one with Jesus talking to the disciples back at the well. Because the disciples have no idea what's going on. Look at this. Verse 31. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. Jesus, I don't know why you're talking to her. Don't really want to ask. But hey, we went and got you food. So, so why don't you go ahead and, and eat 
some of this food? And Jesus answers them in fairly puzzling answer. Verse 32, I have food to eat that you do not know about. All right. What food? What, what food is he talking about? Another misunderstanding, right? Nicodemus misunderstood Jesus. How, how, how can a, a man be born again? Can he climb back into his mother's womb? Which makes me cringe every time I say it. Right? The, the, the woman misunderstood Jesus. If you had known who was asking you for water, you would have given. Okay, where can I find this, this living physical water so I don't have to come back here again? And now the disciples misunderstand. Who brought him food? We left. You had no food. Where did the food come from? Did you bring John? No. Peter? No. Nobody knows where the food comes. They are so confused. And they're confused because they are focusing on the physical. Nicodemus was focused on the physical. The woman was focused on the physical. And here, once again, the disciples now are focused on the physical. So Jesus, when He answers them, He does it, and there, there's some emphatic words that we don't really pick up in, in, in the translation, but He says, My food. My food. All right. And then in verse 32, where He says, I and, and you, those two are, are in emphatic opposition. I have food that you don't know about. My food, He says then, is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. They're all focused on the physical. Jesus immediately moves it to the spiritual. The disciples' mission was to buy food. Jesus' mission is to save save souls. Their their food is bread. Jesus' food, He says, is to do the will of the Father. This, This is not the first time He said that. Matthew 4, when He's being tempted... He says, man shall not live by bread alone, Jesus says, but, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. That, that is His will, to, to live by everything that comes out of God's mouth. And, and part of that is God sending Him to do His will of preaching repentance. And Jesus says, that's my food. That's what is sustaining me. Now, let's be clear on two points here. Number one, Jesus was fully human and needed the physical food. Okay, where it says he was wearied, Jesus was tired. He needed some food. He needed some water. Number two, Jesus is not saying if you're a super duper spiritual Christian, you can go without food. That 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 is that is not what he is saying, right? We're talking about Sunday school, about Christians and good Christians and really good Christians. And it used to be because you'd have the little Sunday school medallions that that hung down. You know, if you only had one bar, you were good. If you had two, you're you know, pretty good. If you had like whole chest, you were, you know, super spiritual Christian. Right? So it, it, it's not that, you know, we just don't eat. What Jesus is saying is our passion to do God's will, to be on mission with God, to be engaged in His mission should be such that sometimes we must temporarily suspend our physical needs to solely focus on the spiritual. Sometimes we just we have to set that aside. Right? I mean, and that's what Jesus is doing. He's tired. He's hungry. He's thirsty. 
But there is a Samaritan woman in a Samaritan village that needed to hear the gospel. He had to go through Samaria. And the urgency of the mission overshadowed the physical hunger pains. Now the disciples are obviously clueless. They, they don't understand what is going on. So, so Jesus, to drive this point home, engages in a little rural farming adage, right? Verse 35, Do you not say there are yet four, more, four months, then comes the harvest? All right. Now this is not, he's not quoting another passage of Scripture. This is, this is just, like I said, a rural farming adage. This is what you would get if you pick up the farmer's almanac. Okay? And you, you've read through those, you know what it looks like. This would be, you know, equivalent to us saying, you know, make hay while the sun is shining. Don't make hay in the dark. I mean, you know, get about your business while it's day. Yeah, I, I caught that. So Jesus is looking at him, looking at them and tell them this. This is what he's saying. You plant, then you have about four, you have a period of time between planting and harvesting. Right? We, we know this. I think everybody in here has a garden or something. There's, there's just a period of time where you have to wait. You plant the seed, the seed germinates, you water it, you fertilize it, it grows, the vegetables appear, then they ripen, then you pick it. And again, in the physical realm, that is absolutely true. You don't plant day one and harvest the absolute next day. If it did, I would be a better gardener. I would garden more. Because that would be pretty cool. But it doesn't happen. Jesus looks at them and says, because of that, there, there's really no sense of urgency to get to the harvest. Because you can't rush it. There's, there's not, think about it. There is nothing that you could have done. If you planted tomato plants this year, thank you, Roger and Julie, for all the tomatoes. There was nothing Roger and Julie could do this year to make those tomatoes appear on that vine any quicker to pick them for us. Nothing. He says, but when it comes to the mission, the mission of the gospel, it is urgent. There is a sense of urgency and there is no time where we just sit back, kick up our feet and go, okay, we'll wait. Jesus says, look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are they're already white. It's already harvest time. And I imagine as he is saying that, I, I just I kind of have this picture, and, and this is extra biblical, so I just I throw that in when it is. I can imagine Jesus standing here, the town is over there, the disciples are standing here, and Jesus sees them coming up to the well. He says, Look, the harvest is already here. How long did it take for the seed that Jesus planted with the Samaritan woman to take fruit, to fall on the ground, to germinate, to make her go tell other people so that other people were coming up as well. Not very long. He says the harvest is, is already here. It's, it's ready. Go. Go bring them into the kingdom. Don't let them stay on the vine. What's the worst thing you can do with a pickling cucumber? You let it stay on the vine. Yeah, it ain't good. Right? That's one of the things that Americans, I don't think some of them understand. Just because a piece of produce is bigger doesn't mean it's tastier. Pickling cucumber is at zip a 
Right? He's saying they're on the vine. Don't waste time. Don't let the fruit go to waste. And if that's not enough, Jesus says, I got to give you one more while I'm talking about it. He says, by the way, when, when you do this, here the old saying holds true in verse 37, one sows and another reaps, which means exactly what it implies. And in Jesus' time, you would have had people who would have been sowers and people who would have been reaping because contrary to what we think of just throwing seed out, there was more skill in it than just, we'll toss seed out wherever it goes. But was there ever any animosity between those who sowed and those who reaped? No, why? They're working for the same goal. The reaper can't sow without the sower. The sower can't sow without the reaper. They have to work together. So what is Jesus saying to him? He says, look, the harvest is already here. It's time. Go out, work together, and please understand there's not to be any jealousy. There's not to be any jealousy at all. Just because you sow the seed and you're not the one who, who reaps it doesn't mean that you get to, to be put off by it. Rejoice. Rejoice that somebody sowed and you get to reap because you may sow and somebody else reaps. So it is a caution not to be jealous because let, let's, uh, again, speaking for me, because y'all are more holy than me, it'd be cool to have a ministry like Billy Graham. All right? Where I could say, man, I preached and millions of people came to Christ. That'd be pretty cool. Right? I think I shared this story with you before. We always kind of felt bad since we were in Eastern Europe when the IMB people would get together and people from China or, or East Asia or wherever. It was like, yeah, we went out and preached the gospel and, and, and last year we saw like 700 people come to Christ and we got a whole team of people who's in Russia going, well, they saw one. <laughs> you, you know. It'd be really cool. We'll get our egos in it. And Jesus, I think, partly is saying, don't get your egos in it. But He's also saying this. And this is important. Christian labor, my labor, your labor, is not a solitary work. Right? First and foremost, God goes before us. When we read this passage, we are reminded that Jesus is the ultimate seed sower. The only reason we have a gospel to preach is because Jesus goes to Calvary's cross. If it was not for that, I, I, I don't have anything to preach this morning. But it also tells us that we work together. And sometimes we build off the work of those around us. That's why Paul later will write that in the church body, we are to be one. We work together as one, and not one part is more important than the other parts. We are all equally important. Your work in the mission of spreading the gospel it's just as important as if you sow the seed or if you reap it. So Jesus says, look, the, the harvest is already here. And about that time, the, the women and, and the people from town arrive and says many believed, right? Many believed from her, her simple testimony. And then she immediately went and was part of the mission. 
So they get there and they're impressed with Jesus and they say, hey, stay with us, stay, stay with us, abide. They use the word abide, abide with us. Now what does that mean? It means they're going to be in the same house. They're going to be using the same utensils. They're going to be breaking all kinds of Jewish customs that the disciples would have looked at and thought, man, this is going to render us unclean. Well, we all know that and we're thankful that Jesus cleanses and makes everybody clean and is not made unclean by those around Him. And so He goes with them and He stays there and He teaches them. And you know what? We know what He teaches because we know what His mission is. His mission is to go and to teach, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And that's what he does. I just, again, it's not in scripture, but I, I just, I know that he does. Because that was what he was came for. So that those who are under condemnation could no longer be under condemnation. Repent. For the kingdom of God is at hand. And because of that, many more believed in him. There was a revival in Samaria. I love reading passages like that because you know what? Where it says that many from that town believed in Him, we're going to see those people in heaven one day. You're, you're going to meet them. And you're going to meet this woman at the well. And like I said earlier, we're going to get to learn her name. And as Jesus is teaching, as Jesus is, is preaching to them, look at where they come. And we're going to close with this. Verse 42. It's no longer because of what you said that we believe. I mean, they believe because of her testimony, but now they, they, they've heard Jesus. So they're not throwing off her testimony. Okay? It says, but, but we believe. Look at what they say. This is indeed the Savior of the world. The Savior of the world. Isn't that amazing? It is not... Israel is not the Jews who make that statement. It is the pagan Samaritans who declare for the first and only time in John's Gospel that this indeed is the Savior of the world. And as we study through John, we have to remember that the world represents everyone who stands in opposition to Jesus and His mission. Even though the people stood against Him, it is these very people that Jesus came to save. He had to go through Samaria. And he preaches, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand and people do. Because Jesus, as the Savior of the world, came to save the Samaritans. He came to save the Egyptians. He came to save the Assyrians. He came to save the British. He came to save those in South Africa. He came to save the Chinese. He came to save the Americans. Jesus came to save. He is not a prophet who came with a message from God. He is not a great teacher who came to give us a better way. He is not a gifted psychologist with keen insights into the human mind. He is not a political revolutionary who came to upend the political systems of power. He is the Savior of the world who came to rescue the world, to rescue me, to rescue you from the condemnations of of our sins. 
And as believers in Jesus Christ, it is our mission to share that testimony as simple as it is. I was lost, but now I am found because Jesus Christ saved me. That is the urgency of the mission. The Gary Talks About God podcast is a production of Touchpoint Ministries and Red Bank Missionary Baptist Church in Germantown, North Carolina. Want to learn more? Visit our website at www.redbankmbc.com. If you enjoyed this content, please like and subscribe. Thank you for joining us.